Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, my lovely Betwixters. It's me, Kate Lister. I am here. You are here. We are all here. And now I have to give you a fair dues warning. Here it is. This is an adult podcast spoken by adults to other adults about adulty things, covering a range of adult subjects in an adulty way. And you should be an adult too. Whew, well, I don't know about you, but I certainly feel safer continuing with this podcast. On with the show! <laughs> It's the 3rd century AD and you have got yourself a very boring boyfriend that, frankly, you would rather be shut of. But it is not that easy to elbow your affianced or your partner or your husband at this particular time period. So what are you going to do? Who are you going to ask for advice? Well, one source, if your Sanskrit is up to scratch, of course, and if you were privileged enough to know how to read was the Karma Sutra. We often think of this as a text to tell you how to have sex with people, but that is such a tiny, tiny part of it. One of the things it gives you some advice on is how to dump a partner. I hope you're all taking notes out there. Here we go. If your boyfriend is boring and you want him to, well, basically dump you first, it advises that a woman talks about things her partner doesn't know about to show no amazement and only contempt for the things that he does know about. I mean, that's gold, isn't it? That would, that would still work today. It advises her to talk in public about the bad habits he can't give up and to criticise men with the same faults when they're alone together. And in the end, the text assures us, the release will happen all by itself. I'm not surprised. Truly a sacred text. And as we will find out, there's so much more to it than sex and even relationship advice. There is so much in this book to get into. Let's do it. What do you look for in a man? Oh, money, of course. <laughs> You're supposed to rise when an adult speaks to you. I make perfect copies of whatever my boss needs by just turning a knob and pushing the button. Yes, social courtesy does make a difference. Goodness, what beautiful time. Goodness had nothing to do with it, dearie. 
and welcome back to Betwixt the Sheets, the history of sex scandal in society with me, Kate Lister. For many people, the Kama Sutra was and is an acceptable sexual text, full of illustrations of such acrobatic sex positions that you're not even sure if you're holding that book the right way up. But the truth is, the sex part of the Kama Sutra is actually tiny and, in many ways, the least interesting part of it. Joining me today to delve into its pages is Wendy Doniger, all-round legend and author of Redeeming the Karma Sutra. Why do we see this ancient book through such a limited sexualized lens? What impact did the Victorians have on its legacy? And what are some of the more pro-feminist passages in there? I am ready to get into this, if you are. Hello and welcome to Betwixt the Sheets. It's only Wendy Doniger. How are you doing? I'm well and I'm very glad to be on this program. I miss England very much and it's nice to be in touch with people in England again. I am so thrilled to have you here because you probably won't remember this because you get so many emails about your work on the Karma Sutra. But when I was writing my book, A Curious History of Sex, I desperately needed to know if there was a Sanskrit word for the clitoris in the Karma Sutra. And I emailed you and you were so lovely and responded and gave me all this information about clitorises and Karma Sutras. And it was just amazing. And I've I've put a big shout out, thank you to you in my book for doing that. <laughs> thank you. I'm glad, I'm glad I was able to help. Do you get lots of random emails like that from people who want to know about the Karma Sutra? I did a lot when the book was first published. And after that, I get questions oh, once a month or two, something like that. They come to, they still come through, what is this? And do the Hindus know about that? And things like that. So, yeah. So... You have worked on Sanskrit and the Karma Sutra for for years and years and years. But the book that we're talking about today, and other ones, is your book, Redeeming the Karma Sutra. So I suppose my first question is, what brought you to the Karma Sutra as an area of study? What was your origin story with this? Well, before I did Redeeming the, Sutra, the Karma Sutra, I published a translation of the Karma Sutra with my colleague Sudhir Kakar. And that we thought was going to replace the Burton, the flawed Burton translation, which is the way most English-speaking people know it. To my uh, sad disappointment, the Burton translation is out of copyright and is free, and anyone, people are just used to it, and so people are still reading the Burton translation and not reading ours as much as I wish they would, but some people are reading it, and it's much more accurate. But, you know, all the books I've written about, starting with my first book in 19, what was it, 72, a long time ago, before you were born, I've been interested, called Shiva the Erotic Ascetic. So I was always interested in the erotic side of Hinduism and the ascetic side, the way it's not just some people are crazy about sex and other people go and meditate and don't eat fish and things like that. It was that it was the same world that there were the same people who had these ideas about the importance of eroticism and the importance of asceticism, that they weren't two warring camps or part of the same god, Shiva, the great god Shiva. And so it was there from the start in in its Indian context. And I I read the Kama Sutra when I was beginning Sanskrit, and I, I knew it, and it's quoted in various places. So I kept bumping into it. And then finally, 
I got so fed up with the Burton translation that I thought there's got to be a better translation than that. So I did it with the help of my colleague and good friend, Sudhir Kakar, and it was great. And then when I realized what resistance there was to the Kama Sutra in India, that it was wow. treated as a dirty book in India, which was such a shame. Part of my general war on Modi's India and the contemporary politics, the anti-Muslim politics, the anti-woman politics of India. So part of that reaction against the way that modern Indians, under the influence of the BJP, didn't appreciate their own culture and didn't appreciate the Kama Sutra and regarded it as a shame, a shameful thing. I said, I got to do something about this. So I wrote the Redeeming the Kama Sutra book. I'm so glad that you did. And your translation of the Kama Sutra, that was what prompted me to write you that email was because I'd read Burton's translation of the Kama Sutra, thinking this is an accurate translation. Why wouldn't you? And then I read yours and I realized that Burton had used the word clitoris and you had not. And I was like, ah, oh shit, right, okay. And I mean, I'm going to assume there are much bigger differences between the two than just the use of the word clitoris. But for you, when you were translating it, what was really jumping out at you as, wow, this is very different from the Burton translation that people are so familiar with? Well, first of all, Burton did not write the Burton translation. Burton wrote the Arabian Nights. He knew Arabic. He didn't know Sanskrit. So he right. was at the mercy of two intermediaries along the way. So it's like a game of telephone. You're going to lose mm. as you go along the way. But the thing that made me most cross about it was the way that he treated women and that the book had a reputation as being sexist for the use of men who want to dominate women and so forth. Whereas in the Sanskrit text, the women are really important and have mm. very loud voices, which were cut out or dimmed or mistranslated. So it wasn't so much the clitoris and the physical part of it, which Burton got by and large correct, although not always, but the social context of it. It's about men and women getting along in all sorts of ways besides in bed. And the women are really quite, they have a voice in the Kama Sutra. And the Kama Sutra's a reputation as a sexist book, kind of like a playboy handbook, mm. was so unfair that I wanted to redeem it in that sense. And I wanted to give it back to, to Indians to say, you can really like this book. You can be proud of this book. It's part of your great contribution to the literature of the world. So I wanted to redeem it for women and for contemporary Indians. Do you think that the image of the Kama Sutra in popular culture, it's kind of morphed into something that isn't even related to the original text in many ways. When you think of it, people think of acrobatic sex and they think of sex manuals and they think of uh, really elaborate images and elaborate drawings. But does that come from Burton's translation primarily? Or is that sort of more of a, a more modern Western interpretation of like this kind of very sexualized image of, of India and Indian culture? More the latter. Okay. First of all, the section on the positions in the Kama Sutra is perhaps one twentieth, one fiftieth of the book. It's just part of chapter really? two. It's only a very small part of it. And even chapter two is not where you put your left hand in your left foot. It's a lot of a lot of other things as well. The whole rest of the book is about how men and women interact in society, how you meet people, how you approach a girl to marry her, how courtesans live. 
how they decide what men to sleep with and what men not to sleep with. Mm. The last book is how you use drugs. I mean, it's all about the life of pleasure. So that it's just a little tiny percentage of that. But we're talking about Victorian India, England at, at the time. And there's a wonderful book called The Other Victorians. I've forgotten the name of the author, but I can look it up. But it's about Victorian pornography. It's about the other side of the coin of Victorians who wouldn't say the word leg of a leg of a table, all that don't show your legs, all that Victorian stuff, that it also had the nastiest whorehouses and the nastiest pornography and all that, all that kind of stuff. They did, yes. That's Burton's India, too. And Burton loved the dirty stuff. He loved the dirty stuff in Arabic, too. He, he collected erotic stuff. So what he liked about it was that brief pornographic section. And that's what got into the culture as, as a whole. Also, it was one of the few dirty books you could read. I remember when I was young, when anyone went to Paris, you asked them to bring back a copy of the Kama Sutra because it was not yet available legally in the United States. It was like James Joyce, you know, it was naughty, Ulysses and so forth. So it was a naughty book. Wow. And no one ever really noticed what was in it. They just did cartoons of women with one leg over their head Mm -hmm. and the other leg behind them and all of that. So partly because of Victorian culture, partly because of the culture of censorship. For a long time, when the Kama Sutra was translated into German, for instance, is a good translation, the parts that deal with the sexual act are left in Latin. (laughs) Right. So it was part of a culture of both pornography and the suppression of normal, decent writing about sexuality. And it got a reputation, which it still has. So people miss all the good stuff in it. So take me back to, because its origins are quite mysterious as well, aren't they? Like, do we know who wrote it? Do we know when they wrote it, where they wrote it? This book kind of materialized from somewhere. Well, we know something. It was probably written in the third century. Um, in North India, the author quotes coming from uh, Pataliputra, which is the modern city of Patna, a northern Indian city. It's a book written in a city. He has a lot of scorn for country bumpkins. The author refers to previous books that he drew upon. This is the first one we have. And then other texts quote him. So we know pretty much what century he lived in, probably the third century in North India. Paintings from the Kama Sutra occur throughout North India all through the years. Someone had a Kama Sutra because there were paintings of it, painting illustrations of it. And then finally, it really surfaced in the 19th century, largely through Burton's efforts. So we've got to give him his juice for that, I suppose. In India, with the moist climate, the heat, the red ants, manuscripts don't last more than a couple of hundred years. Wow. I have a Sanskrit text that was written in the third century. It had to have been copied continuously. Yeah. So it was kept alive. Someone cared about it. So for people that are listening, and like I said, the Karma Sutra's got a reputation as being a sex manual, but what is the book actually about? Is it a story? Does it have a narrator? Is it just written as a third-person guide to life? What is the Karma Sutra? It's not a storybook, although it progresses. There's a first chapter on how a man should set up his bedroom. The second chapter is how he finds a girl to marry. The third chapter is how he behaves. But the third chapter is how you treat a bride on the wedding night. You don't jump her the first night. You talk to her 
uh, several nights. You sleep with her, but you don't have sex with her. No, 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 no. About how to feed a bride. Then the fourth chapter is how to run a household if you're a wife. What vegetables you should plant in the garden. How you should treat your servants. What you do if there are several different wives. How you maintain your political power in the household. Wow. You bring presents for the children of the other wives. Smart. Smart. Absolutely smart stuff. What you do if your husband is sleeping with the other wives and not sleeping with you. What you do to get him back. You cook things that he likes that the other women can't cook. Always been the same. It's about life. It's about life like that. Then the fifth chapter is about how to commit adultery. And it basically tells you how to tell when a married woman is likely to adultery with you. Oh, my goodness. Hard to do because the punishment for an adulterous woman was to be torn apart by dogs in the public square. I mean, you really were not supposed to commit adultery. Men were. So it tells you how you can tell what sort of married woman might actually take that chance. And it's things like a woman who has no children, a woman whose children have died young, a woman who's married to a man who's stupider than she is and embarrasses her in public all the time, a woman who's married to a man who smells bad, a woman who's married to a man who travels and is out of town a lot. A woman who really was promised and married to another man, but then it fell through, so she had to marry this one. It's a whole psychology of unhappy marriage from the standpoint of the woman sympathizing with this woman, how unhappy she must be to take the considerable risk of committing adultery in ancient India when she can be killed for it. And it's like a feminist passage. It's just like a handbook of, of what women put up with when they have inadequate husbands. And it's very, very, very sympathetic to women. See, it's so funny because it sounds so modern as well. Like those all actually seem, you know, I'm not advocating adultery, but those would all seem to be reasons why somebody might be unhappy in a marriage and quite, quite fair ones. I mean, the risk that these women were taking to do it was, that was considerable. A portrait of an unhappy marriage. And then book six is about courtesans. And you would think, well, very few of us who read this book actually perform sexual acts for money. It's not really about us, but it's really about women who are independent, a businesswoman, maybe a woman who had her own business and didn't have to marry for money and didn't mm. have to marry for someone their parents wanted them to marry, but could choose the guy they wanted, which wasn't true of other women. So the courtesan chapter tells you what you, what you look for in a guy. How you choose between a guy who has a lot of money, but you really don't like him, and a guy who doesn't have much money at all, but he's really great and you love him. Oh, what does it say? What's the advice for that? That's a fairly pertinent question to today's audience, I'm sure. <laughs> and then there's a wonderful section, how you get rid of a man you're tired of without actually kicking him out. Right. I'm taking notes, Wendy. Go for it. Tell me. <laughs> she does for him what he does not want in bed, and she does repeatedly what he has criticized. She talks about things he doesn't know about. She shows no amazement, but only contempt for the things he does know about. When he's talking, she looks at her friends with glances. When she's interrupted his story, she tells other stories. She talks in public about the bad habits that he can't give up. She ignores him. She criticizes men who have the same faults, and she stalls when they're alone together. And at the end, the release happens all by itself. That's amazing. <laughs> 
and very useful. How to get rid of someone without actually kicking him. That's advice about how to just make a man stop fancying you and to make him not want to be with you anymore. That's right. Wow. Very useful. You don't want to say, actually, I don't want you anymore. Go away. There are reasons why a woman might not want to do that. So it says from what you're saying that women were the audience of the Kama Sutra. They weren't just pornographic characters within it. Whoever wrote it must have been assuming women are going to read this. They're writing for women. It was definitely written for women. It even says so. Someone might say, well, women can't read Sanskrit, so they can't know what's in the Kama Sutra. And the author says, absolutely not. It's very important for women to know what's in this book, even if they can't read Sanskrit. They might have a friend who knows Sanskrit. And besides, people talk about it. And you can learn what's in a text from people who have read it. And a woman needs to know all of this stuff. And I've written it because I think women should know what's in this text. So it was definitely written for women, even though most women in ancient India did not know Sanskrit. But they said it's word of mouth. Someone's read it. She'll tell you about it. And auntie or princesses mm-hmm. learned. There were women who did learn Sanskrit and said, you get to one of them. And then it gets into the culture. People talk about it. So even people who haven't read it can tell you what they've heard is in it. And you should listen to them. So he wanted women to read it. I'll be back with Wendy after this short break. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. Yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So if it's written by a man from a male perspective, does he talk to male readers about their relationship with women and how they should treat women? He does indeed. There's a wonderful section in the section on marriage on the wedding night. (gasps) where he says she's frightened, don't jump her right away, 
talk to her about other things. The first night, you might not even touch her at all. The second night, you might just caress her and give her a glass of wine and so forth. And eventually, you try very simple things. And then mm -hmm. if she likes that, you might try something a little more elaborate. So he's definitely talking to men. Mm. Indeed, in the section which I read, which I liked so much, the section on how you tell a married woman might commit adultery with you, it's trying to judge what a woman likes and yeah. how you can get to know her and so forth. There's also a section on how you meet a bride when you meet her family before you're getting married and the prospective bride, what you should do when you meet the family and how you should behave to make them like you. You know, the word comma does not mean sex. It means pleasure. So there are basically three goals of life in ancient India. Dharma, Arta, and Kama. It's like everybody knows this. Dharma is the world of social justice, doing the right thing, learning the rules, going to church or a temple, as the case may be, behaving yourself like that as, as a family person, marrying the right kind of person, raising your kids. That's all Dharma. Arta is money and political success. It's how to outsmart people. If you're a king, how to manipulate other kings. It's very Machiavellian than Machiavelli. It's a very, the science of art is the science of how to make money, how to make power, and so forth. Everyone should have some of that, just as everyone should have some of the social justice world of Dharma. And the third thing that every life should have is karma, which means pleasure. It means wearing a silk dress instead of a cotton dress. It means cool places to swim on a hot night, good food, good music, how to appreciate good dancing, good music, having a nice house instead of a not nice house. And that's considered a legitimate goal of human life, along with making money and doing the right thing. So the Kama Sutra is about that. The whole first book is about how to set up your room, what kind of food you serve mm -hmm. at a party, how you invite people to parties at your house and so forth. It's the good life for a well-to-do person, not necessarily upper caste, but you need money to lead the life of the Kama Sutra. And this is a guy who never visits his mother, apparently, who just lives for pleasure, never goes to the shop. You never see him in the office. He wakes up in the morning and he has a bath and somebody shaves him and da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. They tell you how to set the bedroom up. Afterwards, wow. he says there should be two bathrooms because you both won't want to look at each other because you're a wreck. So she'll go to her bathroom to clean up and you'll go to your bathroom to clean up. That's good advice. That's <laughs> So it's about the life of pleasure of a privileged person, not necessarily high caste. I was just about to ask you about class and how that plays out in the Karma Sutra because from what I've read of it, like you're saying that to live this life, you must have a lot of money. This isn't a guy who's going without. If he can afford two bathrooms for you to clean up afterwards, he's making some bank. But it does seem quite accessible, even if like you're reading it and you're thinking, well, I don't have two bathrooms. But you could still apply a lot of it. So what is its relationship to class and caste? Caste is never mentioned at all in this book, which is extraordinary for an ancient Indian text. Wow. It's not about caste at all. You choose your partners and your friends on the basis of their talents, their beauty, their availability, their simpatico personalities. Mm. You do need a certain amount of money. That's fair. You do. It's first of all, assumes leisure. It mm. assumes you've got a lot of time 
that you stay out all night and sleep until the early afternoon and you have servants bringing you stuff. So it's a moneyed class, but it's not necessarily a noble class or a Brahmin caste or anything like that. You just have to have enough money to give you the leisure and the freedom to live a life which is entirely dedicated to pleasure, as opposed to an ordinary person's life in which he must spend some time on dharma, going to church and being mm -hmm. nice to his mother. And you've been nice to your mother and you've made a good marriage that the family approves of and you've got enough money to do this, then, then you have fun. And this is about how you have fun. Is there any mention in the Kama Sutra about working class, that his servants and that the people below him, I, I just have this image of, of his servants wandering around, like becoming aware of this book about how great it is to lie around all day and all of them just thinking, chance would be a fine thing, mate. Does he, does he show an awareness of the people who can't live that life? Absolutely not. Nah, stuff them. <laughs> so no, it's 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 a book. It's more like the Playboy Handbook than anything I know. Yes. Which assumes that a guy has nothing to do but have fun. Do you have? Do we have any sense? And I think you answered this a little bit earlier when you were saying about how the book managed to stay in print. But do we know how popular this book was when it first came out? What its readership was? It's quoted in all sorts of places. Oh, wow. Okay. It's in poetry. It's quoted in books about how the king lives. There's a whole section on the harem and so forth. It's in particular known from paintings. There are wow. lots and lots of paintings, sometimes preserved on walls and on frescoes and sometimes in pictures which were copied over and over because paintings too don't last in India unless mm. they're on, on walls. So it's cited and, and the poetry, which we do have, Poems from all through the ages since since the third century will describe episodes in the Kama Sutra, uh, passages. There's a passage about what you do, long passage, what you do after you've made love. Then you go up on the roof of the house and you look at the stars and you drink wine together and so forth. Oh, that's lovely. Mine's just phone an Uber. That's right. <laughs> you don't just phone an Uber. <laughs> And those passages are quoted and used in erotic poetry, sometimes in religious erotic poetry. There, there are poems about the god Krishna making love to his girlfriend Radha, which use passages from the Kama Sutra. Oh, wow. So it must have been very influential and popular then. There are later texts which use it and rewrite it. There are texts in Arabic which use it. There are texts in Hindi, in South Indian languages that was translated. So it, it really pervaded the culture. It was very well known in the culture of art, really, in, in music. There are songs, there are musical ragas, there are musical themes which take up uh, episodes in the Kama Sutra, there are paintings, poems. In that world, it was known. Again, the world of pleasure. Pleasure. So... It sounds like, from what you said, this is an incredibly influential book. And then eventually in the 19th century, the Victorians in the West went, oh, it's a, it's a bit racy, a bit spicy. But how did it happen that it didn't, because you said at the beginning of the interview that you wrote Redeeming the Karma Sutra because you wanted to allow people in modern India to, like the, you said that it was viewed as a dirty book. So how does it go from a book in India that is discussed with kings and gods and, and it's everywhere 
to being regarded as a dirty book. Was that Burton again? Did he do that? How did that happen? Burton in um, It's Your Fault. It's totally our fault. I knew you were going to say that as well. All the countries to take over India, the Victorian British, I mean, give us a break. Yeah. And the covering up the statues in the temples that had women with breasts and kicking the dancing girls out of the temple. Yeah. The British made the Indians ashamed of their own culture. Yeah. That was the end of that. And that was the end of that. So that process of colonialization, basically, and about the British Raj turning up, teaching Indian people shame and with the Devdasi dancing girls. Oh, these women who always went around bare-breasted, all of a sudden they're wearing Mother Hubbards. <gasps> oh, we really did fuck things up, didn't we? And besides taking away all this money, which made it a very poor country when it had originally been a very rich country, that also counts. But I don't care about that as much as I care that it it's made them ashamed of their own religion. Made them ashamed. So that only one thin strain of Hinduism, which is very much like Protestantism, was considered good. And that's the strain of Narendra Modi's Hinduism. That's what he's using. It's anti-woman. Of course, it's anti-Islam. That came from the British. It came from Bengal. Where the British first moved from Bengal. Then they moved their capital to Bombay later. But the impact of the Raj was in Bengal. And it was Bengal which had the intellectuals. So that the intellectual world of India was heavily influenced by English-speaking, upper-caste Hindus who worked for the British, who worked with the British, who appreciated the British, who were influenced by their values and became very much ashamed of their own culture. The British, the West, we have a very, very complex relationship, still do, but definitely in the 19th century, to Indian culture and society because they were... Obviously, experiencing something like the Karma Sutra, Victorian sensibilities couldn't cope with that. They couldn't square that circle at all. But it's not true that they were so shocked by it that they tried to hide it. They were obsessed with it in their own outraged way. And the more they were outraged, the more they were interested in it. So it's created this strange relationship. It's taught India to be ashamed. But at the same time, the West were obsessed with it. They just loved it. And it justified their rule. These are primitive people, oversexed, passionate, emotional, but not rational, not able to think straight. They need us to rule their country because they, they're like children, really, and they're sort of oversexed and so forth. That was the image, the noble savage and so forth, women in Tahiti with their breasts, that whole world. For a while, British soldiers married Indian women all the time in the 18th century. A lot of it. And then the British got tired of it. A lot changed at the time of the so-called mutiny, now known as the War of Independence, but it was a mutiny. It mm. happened in the army and the soldiers revolted against their officers, which is what a mutiny is. In any case, it totally ended the period in which the British interacted with Indian people, either to marry them or to sleep with them or whatever it was. And they completely blockaded and largely stopped the marriage English men and Indian women, which had happened a whole lot in the 18th century. By the 19th century, that was the end of that. So when we're talking about the Kama Sutra and the legacy that it's had, it's kind of starting to bring us together nicely. We're talking about the legacy. We're not just talking about the stories, the text. It is an emblem and it was instrumental in British colonialism in the oppression of India in many ways. Yes, it was part of the British 
attitude toward Indians which justified their rule. Yes. Something the matter with these people. They can't run their own country. We'll run it for them and we'll teach them to be better people. And the Kama Sutra was part of the image of Indians as oversexed, ignorant, mm. out of control, emotional rather than rational. Yeah. This was the justification for the imposition of British systems, British education, Protestant missionaries, the whole change that took place. So, and this is what your book, Redeeming the Kama Sutra, is about, is about not so much trying to say that it isn't a shameful text, but trying to reintegrate it and get people to look at it again through non-colonial eyes? Would that be a fair thing to say? To look at it without these prejudices and to see the many passages that are not about the physical act and to appreciate how much wisdom there is in it about a kind of a cosmopolitan lifestyle, which is favorable to women, which appreciates women, which helps women. Those things that we don't know, this idea about going up on the roof after you make love, it's a really cool idea. That's lovely, isn't it? All right, my final, final question to you, just because I think that everybody should know this. When I wrote to you to ask about the clitoris and the Kama Sutra, you wrote back to say that it's not mentioned explicitly, but you did tell me what the Sanskrit word for clitoris is translated as. And it's quite frankly amazing. And you said that it translates to Umbrella of the love gods. That's right. <laughs> That's just incredible. Exactly, because it's shaped like that. Exactly. That's the idea. Was it because it's it was the shape of it? The shape of it and the idea that that's where the love god enters in. That's a group of people who know how to please women. It's the umbrella of the love gods, right? There's a lot about how to please women. It's a great deal about how women achieve their climax and how to make them do it. When did you have been? unbelievable to talk to today thank you so much and if people want to know more about you and all of your work where can they find you well they can find me on wikipedia you know tells my books and what i've done thank you so much you have been an absolute umbrella of the love gods treat (laughs) thank you for asking such good questions and just for wanting to do it at all I, i love talking about this subject and it was a great pleasure thank you thank you you for listening and thank you so much to wendy for joining me and if you like what you heard please don't forget to like review and follow along wherever it is that you get your podcasts if you'd like us to explore a subject or maybe you just fancied saying hello then you can email us at betwixt at historyhit.com we have got episodes on everything from robert burns's sex life to sex in ancient rome all marching your way This podcast was edited and produced by Stuart Beckwith. The senior producer was Charlotte Long. Join me again Betwixt the Sheets, the history of sex scandal in society, a podcast by History Hit. This podcast contains music from Epidemic Sound. Thank you for listening to this episode of Betwixt the Sheets. Please follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget, you can also listen to all these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com forward slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use the code BETWIXT at checkout.